It's not hard to realize that soap is not appetizing. It doesn't taste good. And soap is not nutritious. A diet of soap would not do you very well. After a while, you get sick. You could even die if you eat too much of it because soap could kill you. But does that make soap useless? Would you say, well, because you can't eat it, this stuff is no good? Would you warn people to stay away from soap because it tastes bad, because it can damage you if you eat it? Well, of course you wouldn't. Why not? Because soap was never designed to be eaten. It was never created to be nutritious. Rather, soap's designed for cleanliness. It was created in order to kill germs. And you can get a lot of good out of soap if you use it the way that it's intended to be used. And it would be foolish to miss out on all the benefits of hygiene that would come your way by using soap regularly simply because you've concluded, well, soap has no nutritional value. If you don't understand what a thing is for, then you're likely to misjudge its real value. A boat will not help you on the interstate. And a car won't help you in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. Why? Because boats are designed to move in water and cars are designed to move along on roadways. Understanding that and not expecting a thing to do what it was never designed to do can help you to appreciate that thing and to use it properly. Well, that's certainly true of the law and the gospel. If you've been around Christian churches very much, you've probably heard a great deal about the gospel of Jesus Christ. At least I hope you have. Because Christian churches exist in order to make disciples. And disciples are made only by believing the gospel. And God has entrusted the gospel to churches, not to anyone else, not to any other institution or organization. If you do not believe the gospel, then you cannot be a Christian. The gospel is a message. It's the message of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's who he is. It's what he's done. And it's why that matters. And if you understand those things from Scripture and you submit your thinking to that and you believe that, well, then you are a Christian. This is the only message that can save a person, that can make a person right with God. If you do not believe this message, that is, if you don't believe the gospel, if you don't trust Jesus Christ as Lord, then you cannot be reconciled to God. Your sin will not be forgiven by Him, and you will have to suffer eternally the consequences of your sin against this holy God. The gospel is the only message that God uses to save sinners. Rules cannot make you right with God. Not even God's rules. Not even God's law. And because that is true, some people have come to the mistaken conclusion that the law is no good. Some even go so far as to say that the law is dangerous. The law is 
is bad. Because if you try to keep God's commandments in order for God to accept you, you will miss out on God completely. And that's certainly true. Nobody can ever be good enough for God. And that's a true reality that we all must face. But the fact that God's law cannot save you does not mean that God's law then is useless or that it is bad. In fact, the Apostle Paul warns against making that very mistake in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, when he says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. God's law is good for us if we understand its purpose, what it's for, what it's not for, and then we use it in accordance with that purpose. Paul takes up the use of God's law in Romans chapter 7. In fact, the law of God is the major theme of that whole chapter. The word law or commandment is used 29 times in the 25 verses of Romans 7. In our last study, when we began to look at the first few verses of Romans 7, I pointed out that God's law is designed to function in the lives of those who are not yet Christian, those who are unbelievers, unconverted, as well as to function in the lives of those who are converted, those who are believers. Well, today what I want to do is to drill down on the function of God's law in the lives of those who are not trusting Christ. What does God intend for his law to do in the heart and mind of an unbeliever. And as we study this this morning, I realize that there are those here who are unbelievers. And we want you to know we're glad you're here. We're delighted you're here. We believe that God has this word for you from the scripture so that you can think about your life in the light of his commandments, in the light of what he requires of you. Our text today is Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. Romans 7, verses 7 through 13. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you, you'll find that on page 943. Romans 7, verse 7, down through verse 13. So please follow along as I read these verses aloud. This is God's word to us today. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law... I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. God's good law plays an essential role in the life of an unbeliever. His law is designed to work in those who are not yet converted. To help them understand the truth about themselves and about God. So that they might seek 
to turn away from everything they've been trusting and turn to the provision God has made for sinners in Jesus Christ. In verses 5 and 6, right before the text that I read this morning, Paul gives us a clue about what the rest of this chapter 7 is about. If you look at those verses, you'll see in verse 5, he summarizes how God's law worked in his own life as an unbeliever. And then in verse 6, he summarizes how the law worked in his life as a believer. And what we're going to do this morning in the text before us, verses 7 through 13, is actually to expound what Paul says in verse 5. And then, Lord willing, next week, beginning in verse 14, we will expound what he says in verse 6, because that's the way Paul organized this portion of his letter. He gives us the points about the law with unbelievers in verse 5. He summarizes it. And then the law functioning for believers in verse 6. And then he immediately in verse 7 begins to elaborate what he summarized in verse 5. And then in verse 14 begins to elaborate what he summarized in verse 6. But before we start working our way through this passage, I want to be really clear about what Paul means by the law. What's in his mind when he refers to the law and how the law worked in his own life as an unbeliever and how it works in the lives of unbelievers down through today. We don't have to speculate about that. We don't have to guess at the answer. If you look at verse 7, Paul tells us what law he's talking about because in verse 7, he quotes the 10th commandment. Paul's talking about the 10 commandments here. When he says, you shall not covet, he is bringing to his reader's attention the Ten Commandments. That's the last of those Ten Commandments. This is the law that, God, that Paul is speaking about in these verses. And note what he says about the law. Look at verses 12 and 13. What does he call the Ten Commandments? He calls that summary of God's law holy, righteous, and good. God's law is not only right, it is that, it's good. It's holy. It is good for us. And what we see in our text in verses 7 through 13 is that this good law of God plays an essential role in the lives of those who are not yet converted. People who are unbelievers. These verses show us four ways that the law of God is designed to work in an unconverted person's heart and mind. In verse 7, we see first that the law reveals sin. It reveals sin. Paul says, you know, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. The law itself is not sin. It's not sinful. When you go back through these opening chapters, chapters 1 through 6, and see some of the things Paul says about the law, and the fact that it's not useful for justification, it's not useful for salvation, it's not going to bring you into a right relationship with God, you might be tempted to think, well, man, yeah, the law really is sin. The law really is bad. But Paul here wants to be very clear that just because the law cannot justify a person doesn't mean it is sinful. Just because soap gives you no nutrition doesn't mean that it is bad. We must recognize what the purpose of the law is, especially what Paul teaches us here regarding 
the life of an unbeliever. The law helpfully shows unbelievers their sin. 1 John 3, 4 simplifies for us what sin is when it just says sin is lawlessness. We get all confused in our day about what's right and wrong, what's sin and not sin. Well, Scripture is very clear. Sin is lawlessness. God is the one who has told us what sin is, and sin is whatever He calls it to be. Sin is defined for us in the Ten Commandments, and so we see what is right in those commandments, what is forbidden in those commandments, and what is forbidden is sinful. This is why we teach in this church that sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. The law of God objectively defines sin. That is, whether you understand it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, sin has been clearly defined for us in the Ten Commandments. That's why Paul says what he does in verse 7. He's not talking simply about the objective reality of what is and is not sin, but also of our personal awareness of that reality. He's already written in chapter 3, verse 20 of this letter that through the law comes knowledge of sin, and now he shows us how that works. How is it that we come to a knowledge of sin through the work of God's law in our lives? He says in our text, verse 7, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Right and wrong are objective realities, but you can be unaware of those realities if you've not been taught the standard that defines them. And so Paul cites the 10th commandment to illustrate his point. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. His lustful desires for things that were not his would still have been sinful had he never come to understand the 10th commandment that says you shall not covet. The law served him well as an unbeliever because it revealed his sinfulness to him. I remember well that Wednesday night 21 years ago when I had my first MRI. And I was ushered into this little room, very sterile, and there's this big machine and this little opening, and they slide you in that opening. And it's bright lights and a loud thumping noise goes on for about 30 minutes and you just have to lie there very still. It was an unpleasant experience. A few days later, I met again with the neurosurgeon that had ordered that MRI. And as she was showing me the scans on this backlit monitor and pointing out things, she said, oh, you've got ruptured discs here. You've got your, your spinal cord is bruised here. And we have some things that, need serious attention. Well, I was grateful to know it. It had been real prior to the MRI. The MRI didn't put it there, but the MRI exposed it so that I could seek proper treatment for it. In the same way, the law doesn't create sin in our lives. The law reveals the sin that exists in our lives. The law cannot cure sin. Just as an MRI cannot cure bad discs. But the law can reveal it so that you can seek the cure. So that you can pursue that place that God has provided forgiveness and cleansing from sin. 
so that you can seek the Lord Jesus Christ and put your hope and trust in Him. God's law reveals sin. That's why it is so important that we teach His law. Parents, I I can't underscore enough the significance of teaching your children the Ten Commandments. Help them to learn the Ten Commandments and help them to understand what the commandments are actually saying. It's the reason that we're going through the Ten Commandments on Sunday nights is because this is vital knowledge. This is God's purpose for people coming face to face with their sin through understanding His law. We live in God's world. He has set the standard by which those who bear His image are required to live. That standard is summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. And if we do not know it, if we do not take it seriously, be assured of this, the day is coming when every one of us in this room and everyone you know will stand before God and will give an account of his or her life on the basis of God's holy law. The law reveals sin. It makes sin known to us. Secondly, we see in verse 8, the law aggravates sin. It doesn't just reveal it. It actually does something to stir it up in us. Paul says, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Paul's giving to us here something of a psychological history of his own experience in coming to grips with his personal sin against his holy God and the need to be reconciled to that God through the provision of Jesus Christ. Apart from the law, he says, sin lies dead. In other words, sin was dead to his conscience, just like it's dead to some of your consciences this morning. You're not really concerned about sin. You don't think yourself to be a significant sinner, if a sinner at all. Well, Paul lived that way most of his life in ignorance of his own sin because the law of God that he did know intellectually had not been pressed home to his conscience. Sin uses the law to stir up more rebelliousness in us. The law provides, Paul says, an opportunity for sin. It's an interesting word that he chooses there. It's a word that would be used for the base of operations for a military assault. Whenever an army is going into a region, they they have to have a staging area, a place that they can launch from and a place they can get supplies to. And Paul says, yeah, sin in us uses the law in that way. You see, the law prohibits and restricts us. And the sin that is within us uses those restrictions as an occasion to rebel in pursuit of what we think is freedom. Happiness, self-fulfillment. The law says you shall not, and there's something in us that says, but why not? That, that would be so good. That'd be so pleasurable. I would enjoy that. This is exactly what we see going on in the Garden of Eden when the devil tempted Eve. He was successful in getting her to think that God's commandment was withholding something good. And she saw the fruit, that it was good, pleasant to the eyes, pleasant to eat. And the commandment of God, you shall not, 
became the staging grounds for her to launch into sin. And this was effective strategy on Eve, even though Eve didn't have any sin within her at the time to add to the temptation. Sinful human nature regards God's commandments as keeping us from that which we think must be good for us. We think it would be joyful to experience this. Why, this would make my life complete. And as we look at God's law in that way, it leads us into all kinds of sin. I like the way that Douglas Moo explains Paul's point here in this verse. He says, It was only after the Israelites had heard the commandment not to make any idols for themselves in Exodus 20 that they had Aaron fashion a golden calf for them to worship in Exodus 32. In just this way, the law, abused by the sinful tendency already resident in every, every person, has been instrumental in stimulating all kinds of sinful tendencies. God says, you shall not. And there's just that within us that thinks, we can get away with this. This will be good. Augustine was one of the great early church leaders in the late 4th and 5th centuries. And at the end of his life, after he was converted, which he, he lived a horrible life before he was converted. I mean, went into all kinds of immorality openly, shamelessly. But he wrote a book called Confessions, where he looks back on his life. And it's a very devotional book because he's now taking everything that he's been taught in God's word and he's reassessing his life and he's confessing truths that he now sees that he didn't see at the time he was living through them. Sins that he now sees that he didn't understand the times that he was committing them. In one place in his confessions, he writes about joining with some childhood friends, going to a nearby pear orchard and stealing baskets full of pears. And this is what he said. We took off a huge load of pears. Not to feast upon ourselves, but to throw them to the pigs, though we ate just enough to have the pleasure of forbidden fruit. They were nice pears, but it was not the pears that my wretched soul coveted, for I had plenty better at home. I picked them simply in order to become a thief. I only, the only feast I got was a feast of iniquity, and that I enjoyed to the full. What was it that I loved in that theft? Was it the pleasure of acting against the law in order that I, a prisoner under rules, might have a maimed counterfeit view of freedom by doing what was forbidden with a dim similitude of omnipotence? The desire to steal was awakened simply by the prohibition of stealing. Have you ever felt anything like that? Have you ever looked honestly, taking the lens of Scripture back over your life and had to sadly confess, as Augustine did? The pleasure was just in the wickedness itself. Not in what I thought I would get by doing the wickedness. An innate desire to rebel in the face of the clearly revealed law of God lives within every unconverted person. 
And when the law of God comes to a person, it becomes the staging ground, a launching pad for giving vent to those sinful passions. This is precisely how it operates in the hearts and minds of those who have not bowed the knee to Jesus and had their sin forgiven and been reconciled to God. John Bunyan illustrates this very well in his book, The Pilgrim's Progress. He has this room in the interpreter's house, the house of the Holy Spirit, where Christian is learning about the, the Christian life. And it's a parlor, and it's filled with dust. And so the interpreter calls a man in with a broom to begin to sweep the dusty floor. And of course, if you've ever tried to do that, you know what happens, right? You can't sweep dust. <laughs> it just goes nuts. Ed Christian is standing there watching this. An interpreter explains it to him. And he says, the man sweeping is the law of God. The dusty floor, the dusty parlor is the sinful heart of every person. And the law cannot clean you up. What the law of God does is stir up sin that resides within all of us. The law reveals sin. It cannot eliminate sin. But it can aggravate sin. The third thing that Paul says the law can do in the life of an unconverted person is to kill self-righteousness. The law kills self-righteousness. Look at verses 9, 10, and 11. In verse 9, Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. In other words, self-righteousness lives apart from the law doing its work in a person's heart and mind. Paul's thinking back over his own life, that time where he lived for years thinking he was fine. He was a Pharisee after all, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was alive apart from the law. The law was a mere formality to him. He was a faithful Jew who had been well taught the Old Testament scriptures. So he knew the law. In fact, he had gone through the rituals to become a son of the law in his bar mitzvah. But he was living oblivious to the power of the law. He had not felt its full force upon his conscience. So he was living in blissful ignorance of his sin. It's in that sense that he says, I once was alive apart from the law. He thought he was okay. Slept okay at night. Wasn't bothered, wasn't concerned. Believed that he and God were on good terms. But when the law comes, you see that word comes, when the law came, self-righteousness dies. That's what happened to Paul. He says the commandment came. It came. What does he mean by that? It means it finally landed on me what God really means in his commandments. I saw the law for the first time in its strictness. It's unbending, unwavering demand for complete righteousness. I felt the law's force in its spirituality going not just to what my hands do, but to what my head thinks and what my heart feels. And in that moment, sin was fully exposed. He says, sin came alive. That's what he means. It was there. It was just dormant. He'd figured out how to manage it. He had it under control. 
He really didn't think of himself as being that bad of a guy. His sense of being was okay. But he says, when sin came alive, I died. In other words, my self-righteousness died. How did that happen? Look at verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. You see what the law says? God's law says, do this and you will live. Now, that commandment, do this with a promise and you will live, was never designed to give life to sinners. It was the way for Adam and Eve to stay on a path of life and righteousness in which they had been created. But when they sinned and the whole human race sinned in them, the law doesn't change. It still says, do this and live. And Paul, as a Pharisee, thought, well, okay, I'm doing it. I'm living. That law designed to bring life, though, when it finally dawned on him, caused sin to come to life, caused his own self-righteousness to die. Paul had lived a long time thinking that he had life that he had a right standing with God. When he finally came to understand the law, he saw what it really requires, not just right actions, but, but right attitudes, right affections. It was then that the law became an instrument of his spiritual undoing, an instrument that awakened him to his true spiritual condition of being truly spiritually dead. One of the difficulties in convincing people to trust Jesus to find life in Him is that they're not convinced that they're spiritually dead. Before someone can be saved, he has to be lost. I'm not speaking objectively because everyone outside of Christ is objectively lost, but subjectively, personally, he or she has got to come to understand I am a sinner before God. Sin is in my thoughts. It's in my attitudes and affections. It's in my choices. And the God who is holy above me, who has told me what he requires of me, holds me accountable for my failures to live up to his standard of righteousness. In verse 11, Paul clarifies what he means by this commandment proving to be death to him, he says, it's sin. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So it's not the law's fault. The law is doing what the law was designed by God to do in the life of sinners. Sin is what really brings spiritual death, and it does so while trying to keep you duped so that you'll go on living in sin and miss the life that God provides in his son, Jesus Christ. God's law is designed to expose that scam so that you wake up and you see it for what it is. And when that happens, your self-righteousness will die. Like Paul, you'll come to see, I thought I was okay. Sin came alive. And, and the life that I was living that I thought was okay, that died. What Paul writes about his experience in Philippians chapter 3 provides some helpful 
insight into the meaning that we find in his words here in Romans 7. In Philippians 3, Paul describes his self-righteousness as confidence in the flesh. Thinking that I can do this, I can manage this, I can keep God's commandments. In other words, he was confident that he was a good person and acceptable to God. That's what he means here in verse 9 in our text of being alive once apart from the law. So listen to what he writes in Philippians 3 verses 5 through 8. He says, here's why I have more reason than anybody else to think of myself as good enough for God in my own efforts. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. See, Paul is telling us the way that he conceived of himself. I thought I was okay, better than okay. I thought I was at the top of the class in terms of being a Pharisee, zealous for the law. I'll show you how zealous I am. I'll go and hunt down these Christians and I will persecute them. He lived that way before God's Spirit came to him in power, took God's law, and opened his eyes to see what God really requires in his law. He was alive. He was doing okay spiritually. He had no reason for concern, content with his own goodness. He had a resume of righteousness of all the things that he had done. But then he goes on in Philippians 3, and he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Something happened to Paul. Something translated his thinking from, well, I'm okay. In fact, I'm doing really well into, I need righteousness outside of myself. What happened to him is that he came to see all of his personal righteousness as rubbish. How'd that happen? How do you go from being proud of your resume before God to taking your resume up and throwing it in the garbage and saying, it's rubbish? Well, he tells us in our text in Romans 7, 9. The commandment came. Sin came alive. And I died. When he finally saw what God required, all the things that he'd been hoping in, he'd been trusting in, he was confident were going to make him right with God, he saw his soiled, stained with sin, rubbish, sheep dung, literally. And he renounced it so that he might have, through faith, the righteousness that God requires and provides in his son, Jesus Christ. And in turning from his own efforts and trusting himself heart and soul to Christ, he gained real life. The old Paul died, but now he's created as a new man in Jesus Christ through faith. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what God designed his law to do in the lives of unbelievers. Paul here gives us his his 
testimony of how it happened in him. And, and it's, it's as if he's giving us the impression that he was happily living as a Pharisee, doing what he was supposed to do, thinking he was righteous, good enough for God, knew the Ten Commandments, could recite the Ten Commandments, but those commandments had never come to him. They'd never landed on him in the power of the Spirit. He thought those commandments were only concerning externals. What you do with your feet, your hands. Until the commandment came. So I, I get this picture in my mind sometimes of thinking of Paul, the Pharisee, loving the law, knowing the commandments, going over the Ten Commandments. He says, well, okay, have no other gods before me. Check. I haven't worshipped any god but Yahweh. No graven images. Look in my house. You won't find anything that I've made that resembles God that I bow down to. Check. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Never would I do that to Yahweh. My words about Yahweh are always holy. Check. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. I do that. I will not walk more than is required. I won't carry more than is required or allowed any Sabbath day. Check. Honor your father and your mother. I've done that. Cared for them. Respectful growing up. Look after them now. Check. Do not murder. No blood on my hands. No criminal charges ever brought against me. Not a hint that I've ever taken anybody's life. Check. Do not commit adultery. I've never slept with another man's wife. Never would. Check. Do not steal. Why? I've never laid hands on anything that's not mine trying to take it away from the one to whom it belonged. Check. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. No courtroom has ever heard my voice lie against my neighbor. Check. Do not covet. Of course, check, covet, covet, you don't covet with your hands, you don't covet with your feet, covet, it's an attitude of the heart, discontentedness with what God's provided, desiring things in lustful ways, that he's not provided. Covet? You mean God's concerned with righteousness inside of me? Not just what I do, what I think, what I feel? If that's true, I'm a dead man. I'm guilty. I can't control my desires, my thoughts. There are things I've thought, things I've desired that if, if my friends knew, they'd never want to be in the same room with me. The commandment came. Sin sprang to life. It was already in him. He just was not aware of it. And he died. All of the things that he judged to be righteous fulfillments of God's commandments, suddenly became like rubbish. It's not enough. 
What God requires is above me. My best day, I cannot attain it. I need righteousness that I don't have. So he renounced all the righteousness he once thought he had. And he looked to God for the mercy that God promises to all who look to him. And he found the righteousness that God requires in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus came into the world and perfectly kept all of God's commandments. Jesus never had a wrong sinful thought. He never entertained a sinful desire. Jesus fulfilled righteousness. And when Paul saw that his righteousness was not good enough, he renounced it. And in faith, he threw himself at the feet of Jesus and he took Jesus Christ as Lord and he found the righteousness of Christ credited to his account. That's how people become Christians. That's how you will become a Christian. It's the only way. It's turning from your sin, trusting Jesus Christ. And, and if you're here this morning without Christ, friend, no, God brought you here so that you could understand, so that you could be confronted with his way of salvation. And if you've never felt any twinge of conscience about your own sin, oh, I pray God's Spirit right now is working in you, showing you what He showed Paul, what He's shown so many of us, that His righteousness is above us. It's beyond our reach because of sin. And in fact, whenever we look at His law, sometimes we hate His law because we want to do the opposite of what His law says. And that you'll come to the end of yourself and that you'll throw up the white flag of surrender and you'll say, oh God, I cannot be good enough for you. Give me righteousness in Christ and trust him. If you trust him, God will accept you. God will welcome you into his family. God will cover you with the righteousness of Christ in his courtroom and you will be forever declared justified in God's sight. It's the promise of his word. So come to Christ today. Believe Christ today. Follow the example of the Apostle Paul. Believe what the Apostle Paul says to us here in this passage. You'll never be good enough for God. Never. But Jesus Christ has been good enough. And in Him, you can be righteous. The law reveals sin. It aggravates sin. It kills self-righteousness. Finally, the fourth thing Paul tells us in verses 12 and 13 is that the law magnifies sin. Magnifies sin. Paul's careful to vindicate the law from accusations of being sinful. And so we see here again in verse 12, he calls it holy, righteous, and good. Those are interesting words. Not going to spend a lot of time on it, but you think about those words in relationship to God. God is holy, righteous, and good. What we have in the Ten Commandments is a transcript of God's character. These aren't arbitrary laws. These are laws that come from the very heart of God because of who He is. They are both right and good. This holy, righteous, good law does not, strictly speak, speaking, bring death. Sin brings death, and it does so by using the law. That's what verse 13 says. The law shows sin for what it really is. Sin. The violation of God's law is an assault against God's character. 
It is saying to God, I don't want you to be God over me. Sin is more wicked than we can measure. Beyond measure, Paul says. That it might be seen to be beyond measure. That sin might be seen to be utterly sinful. We do not appreciate the wickedness of sin in our day. There was a medieval theologian by the name of Anselm who understood this far better than most of us do. And in writing about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, his mind went to the nature of sin. And he said, sin is so wicked that were we to understand it as we ought, we would not be willing to commit the slightest sin if by doing so we could save the whole world. Would you make that deal? If you could guarantee the salvation of all your children, all your grandchildren, all your friends, all your neighbors. And all it took was just one little so-called white lie. That seemed like a pretty good deal. If it does, it's because we've not yet seen what Paul's talking about here. How wicked sin is. It's an assault against God. And the law of God helps us to see sin in its wickedness. How? Not by magnifying it the way that a, a microscope does, taking little things and making them look big. But by opening up our understanding so that we see it for what it really is. Massive. Whenever we have only treated it as insignificant. The reason that people do not trust Jesus Christ is because they trust themselves. However they rationalize it in their minds, they have convinced themselves that they're good enough for God, that they are alive apart from the law, the way Paul was. And what people in that situation need is to be awakened. They need to be arrested in their thinking to see that they really are not good enough for God. They need the law to come to them in convicting power by the work of the Spirit so they can see the sinfulness of their sin Feel the weight of being a sinner in the hands of the God who hates sin. So that in seeing that, they might look for the righteousness that God's provided in Christ and find in Christ everything their heart desires and turn from sin and trust Him. It's only when a person knows himself to be a sinner that he will have any interest in finding the Savior. And God's law is designed to play a role in that. To act as a mirror. To force us to, to turn and look at it and see ourselves for what we really are. Well, if you're outside of Christ today, think about your life in the light of God's law. Ask God to show you what he showed Paul. Read back through the Sermon on the Mount that Don read a portion of earlier from Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And see how Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anybody who's looked upon a woman with a lustful thought has committed adultery in the heart. And recognize that's what the seventh commandment means for you. And in confessing your sinfulness, your unrighteousness to God, take him at his word and trust Jesus Christ for the righteousness that is found in him that he earned for sinners like you and me. Brothers and sisters, we should think rightly about God's law and how it works in the lives of the unconverted. 
Memorize it, meditate on it, teach it, help people think honestly about what God requires, what he says, so that they might deal honestly with their creator and recognize their need for what he requires that they can't supply. And as we think about the strictness of God's law, its spirituality, and God willing next week as we see how that operates in the life of a Christian who no longer is condemned by that law, we should be stunned and amazed over and over and over that we have in Jesus Christ, the perfect law keeper. He never sinned. He fulfilled righteousness. And he did it for you and me. So the more clearly we think about God's law, the more amazed, stunned, filled with wonder, love, devotion for Jesus Christ who came and satisfied all the law's demands in our behalf. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your law. Your good law. Please help us to think rightly about it. Not to put confidence in our ability to keep it. But to see Jesus Christ fulfilling it. And to find in him that righteousness that you require. That we cannot supply through our own efforts. Oh God, I pray that Christ would be magnified. In our thinking. In our hope and our joy. As we consider honestly what you say about sin and righteousness. Seal to our hearts this morning the truth from your word. Where Christ has never been known, reveal him, we ask. Glorify yourself for his sake. Amen.